You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was add 10 gallons? Add 10 gallons. My first thought was we got to put active children. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> <laughs> Which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems at a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of business. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. This is episode four, and we appreciate you being with us. Uh, today on the show, we have Hank Stevens. He's a plant manager for Rebels Block in Houston, Texas. Um, and when this podcast first started, we promised to give you guys an all-encompassing look at the concrete industry, and we're going to have guests on uh, from all different parts of the industry, all different corners, and we made true to that promise today. Not only did we get you a plant manager for a independently owned block company, this is also one of the, the coolest individuals that we've had a chance to talk with. Uh, lots of cool stories, lots of history, uh, lots of knowledge, and he's been all over the place uh, working in block plants, installing equipment, um, worked for Besser primarily before he uh, you know, stepped into his role as plant manager at Rebels Block. Um, and we're going to talk to him about the block industry as a whole and how it's progressed, how it's evolved, and how it may uh, continue to evolve. But before we get to that, uh, we're going to talk about some current events and check in with the boys. Uh, how you doing, Paul? Doing good, brother. Glad to be here. Good. Joey, what's going on, man? Oh, not a whole lot. Ready to get this thing rolling. All right. I'm going to take this moment real quick to congratulate Joey Bell, his first time back on the podcast since becoming a father. Congratulations, bud. Thank you very much. I uh, hope I don't look too sleep deprived. Over under on the amount of hours you get uh, of sleep at any one given time. We're going to set the, the line at three hours. Is that over or under? Um, it's under considering i actually do not feed the child <laughs> that's uh that's my wife's duty she's the one up uh i actually do wake up every time she gets up just to make sure she you know doesn't need anything or need my help with some catastrophic diaper event 
or whatever whatever occurs at three o'clock in the morning one thing i found out pretty quick that it's the same way with uh pouring concrete at night and also taking care of a newborn at night if something's gonna mess up and just ruin everything it's gonna be at two or three o'clock in the morning (laughs) those two things are pretty constant but uh baby's doing good she sleeps pretty well in between feedings at night so uh we get uh a handful of hours of sleep i probably get i probably get between i don't know five and six hours of sleep i do pretty good there you go yeah that ain't too bad hey look we're praying for two things for baby jolene number one that she's healthy and number two that she looks like her mama and not like you <laughs> Well, she does look like me, so if if she looks like me and acts like her mom, I just don't have any hope for her. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, Joey, why don't you tell us about the, the first thing you found? I found a couple short little things to discuss in our little segment here. Uh, the first one being is a uh, is a company called, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Konzuk or Konzuk. K-O-N-Z-U-K. And the reason they kind of popped up and uh, what I thought was pretty interesting, they're making a line of concrete jewelry, uh, which is based on the artist Frank Lloyd Wright. It's based on some of his uh, some of his pieces. And I'm scrolling through here. I know it's kind of hard to describe like on a uh, audio audio media uh, show that we got going on here. But the pieces actually look really cool. They're they're offering uh, earrings, necklaces, uh, you know, regular finger rings, cufflinks. The cufflinks actually look pretty cool, which would be pretty nice for some, you know, NRMCA or ACI event or banquet or something like that. But basically, we know what he's getting us for Christmas now. Yeah, for Christmas. (laughs) That's what we hope for anyway. One thing I haven't uh, clicked on is what these things cost. So it may be the most expensive (laughs) concrete known to man. It looks like a few droplets of just uh, it just looks like, you know, sand, a little bit of sand and cement and some water and color. It's about what it looks like. Uh, It looks just grainy enough that you can tell that there's probably some sand in there, but it looks really cool. And uh, I'll send you guys a link. and We'll put them in the show notes uh, for people to look at. But yeah, especially the cufflinks and stuff, that'd be something cool to get for uh, some of these concrete events that we'll have one day when COVID disappears. Right. You said Frank um, Lloyd Wright, like the architect. That's what yeah. the George sounds like the architect. Yeah. Yep, that's Most it. Uh, yeah. I don't think it. Let's see. I was trying to see in the article here if it if it referenced any particular pieces. Yeah, um, I saw a lot of straight lines, uh, interesting angles. Got did some cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that pretty much describes what the what these uh, jewelry pieces are. They're they're really neat actually. And uh, it, like I said, it's hard to describe over the podcast, but when uh, you get the link in the show notes, you can click on them and they look pretty cool. And I also haven't, I also haven't uh, found out what these things cost, so we could be just barking up, <laughs> barking up the wrong tree and stuff that we can't afford, like usual. <laughs> <laughs> so, leave it to the Tennessee fan to uh, start an audio podcast with a visual idea that nobody has any concept for thanks yeah and also yeah description brick by brick 
That's right. We got five. We got a five star heart podcast going on right here. <laughs> it's off the rails for five minutes. <laughs> Uh, the other uh, the other thing I found that I thought was pretty interesting, I know I think it was in our first episode that Josh was talking about the ACI uh, ACI convention and committee meetings and everything coming up this spring um, or this fall actually maybe either way they were going to be all online and uh, talking about the pros and cons of that. Well, the NRMCA has partnered with uh, let's see, it's partnered with Dubai actually. They're going to have they're going to base this in dubai they're going to have a global concrete summit and it's going to run from november 30th to december 10th of this year and they're going to talk about everything it's it sounds to me like they're cramming all the seminars of world of concrete into these online uh seminars and discussions Uh, it's going to be everything from design uh, specifications the manufacturing of concrete testing r&d construction maintenance research you name it, and it sounds like they're going to have some uh, they're going to have some webinars and stuff on uh, on this global concrete summit thing. So I was just wondering if you guys had any thoughts on that. I know we kind of hit on something similar in episode one, but they're taking this to a, a whole nother level and making this global. Uh, I was going to see here if it listed any of the countries that were participating. Obviously, the United States within our MCA in Dubai. Um, I'm going to assume they're going to be guys from the Middle East and probably South America and Europe. Um, Australia is always, always at some of these things. So, um, anxious to see what all comes about it. We'll keep our eye on it and see what all specifically they discuss. Yeah. I mean, if there's ever a time to do something like that, now's the time. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, to an extent, concrete is concrete all around the world. Your materials differ, um, but you know, your mixed designs and I mean, there's subtle nuances and changes, you know, here and there, depending on which country you go to. But the one thing that is vastly different that they probably won't talk about for obvious reasons is uh, safety protocols. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> guys from all around the world, they can talk concrete because it's relatively similar but mm-hmm. when guys in the U.S. start talking about safety protocols to some guy in the Middle East, they're going to go, what? You got to wear a reflective vest? What is that? <laughs> Sound protection? What, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, definitely, uh, it's definitely going to be really different. And uh, uh, you'll find out you know, from Hank and all his travels how things really are different all over the world. Oh, yeah, for sure. And we can relate to that because – We've been around a little bit, but I'd be interested to see if they uh, stick with like ASTM-based uh, projects or they use the international standards uh, when they're talking about this or if it all just gets jumbled up. Because the way you were talking about those seminar topics, it seems like it'd be more categorical for like this country or, or let's talk about this country. And I'd be interested to see how much uh, mingling and intermixing there is and how much you can really take away from that. If you're in the United States and hearing about a, about a bunch of stuff that's going off in uh, the Middle East or uh, Europe or wherever. The language barrier is another thing that will have to be considered. Uh, oh, yeah. Because there's going to be literally people from every continent uh, presenting or, you know, or at this thing. So... That'll be something to consider. It'll be a ta- tower of Babel or Babel kind of situation. Nobody knows what everybody else is talking about. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, and, and another thing, too, there will be technological issues abound because um, it, it's hard enough to have a Zoom uh, conversation or even some of these webinars. Uh, there's it, it kind of coincides with your language barrier uh, thought. You also have I mean, even if everyone's speaking the same language, you have thicker accents. Um, audio quality might vary incredibly you know so we'll, we'll see there's there's plenty of issues that could arise um so i'm even wondering if the people you know whatever group of people are in charge of putting these conversations together you know, what are they doing to try to uh, be proactive towards some of those technological issues they might run into but it's going to be a headache for somebody mm-hmm. yeah i would I would be more concerned about engagement and the ability to make this go well if we hadn't seen some of the other webinars earlier this year that were Cocker related that did really well. NRMCA and SICA specifically that we attended, they did so well. So I hope the NRMCA is reaching out uh, to those groups that did such a good job and are going to you know, take from them and do really well with this. Well, goal number one is limit who can talk number two you limit the uh, or streamline the way you take and answer questions that's what jim casilio was talking about when he was here yeah on the last episode yeah yeah jim hit the nail on the head there i mean you gotta you gotta designate who can talk and then you gotta designate how you can ask questions and, and try to answer each question as well as you can but uh to have an open forum in in that kind of environment is almost impossible in my opinion so that's a good point. Hopefully they take a page out of, uh, you know, Sika's book and, and, you know, Jim's book and people who have done it relatively successful up to this point. Yeah. Back, I had 30 people in the call. This, these things could have 300 people yeah. in the call. Mm-hmm. Did it, Joey, did it mention at all if this was taking place of any of the events that are going to happen at War of Concrete next year? Did it mention World of Concrete at all? It didn't mention World of Concrete. Um, but I did see later on in the article, uh, I'm going to take a quote from the article. It says, we are excited this year to have the event on a virtual platform after having it organized live for 10 consecutive years in Dubai. So it sounds like they've had this uh, for many years before, and they're just taking it. They're using the opportunity, or I guess you could call it an opportunity, but you're the current events of the of everything going on in the world today they're going to make it online and see what they can get out of it there and i wonder if it affects it in the future if they have more if you have more participation in this virtual event than you would be if you had to go to dubai to participate in it i read over a year ago and it's one of my favorite construction articles i've ever read and it's from road and bridges magazine so they're uh, the website is roadsbridges.com, and this specific project is in Birmingham, Alabama. They are redoing the I-65, the I-2059 uh, interchange. Now, locally, that's known as Malfunction Junction, and <laughs> when the government has <laughs> decided to come in, and redo that. Now it's it's a mess. If you guys, I think y'all have driven through it a fair bit, and 
what you see in this uh, spaghetti whirlwind of uh, bridge and elevated bridges and uh, for these highways is that you've got like awkward left off ramps, left on ramps, uh, roads that have no business connecting to other roads that are just winding away all in and out. It's an absolute mess. At five o'clock, you could just forget it. And it's not like it's the size of LA. It's got 20 million, 24 million people in it. So you're like, okay, I understand why there's gridlock here. No, it's Birmingham. There's 500,000 people. Why is there gridlock? We have tons of road. Why is it like this? Well, it was just fully designed. It just didn't build out correctly. So I said, you know what? Let's go in here and build it out correctly. So nearly a billion dollar project. And what's fascinating about it is the companies that came in ahead of time and they mapped the whole thing with LIDAR. 2.3 billion points of LIDAR were mapped out. And they essentially created Grand Theft Auto Birmingham. And you could run around and instead of giving a right hook to ladies of the night, you can instead see where the underground electrical utility is. <laughs> <laughs> So you go to, you know, dig right there, <laughs> you know, you can't do that. So what they determined is uh, by mapping the whole thing out, and I mean, uh, above ground electrical, underground electrical, sewer pipes, all kinds of stuff, like anything you can imagine uh, that you would be involved with the construction, especially uh, tearing out, putting in new roads and bridges, everything you can imagine. They found one thousand potential delays based on like the original production schedule and where they were going to put the bridges and where they were going to build these new uh, downtown, you know, mixed use facilities and where they're going to go. A thousand problems that would have caused delays. And because of that, they saved $10 million estimated by doing that. And who knows how many months. Right. Because they're trying to accelerate this thing. I mean, we've been in Alabama in the past year while they've been doing this project, and it's a mess to get over to the airport uh, if you're coming from like the south side of town. Because the airport's on like the east, a little bit northeast, but kind of city center over to the east a little bit. And to get over there, you would normally take the interstate that is, you know, missing because they took out all the bridges and put in the new ones. So they're like, okay, we need to try and get this project done in a year. And if we're going to do that, we need to take as much time ahead of time as they can. So for a government body to contract out privately, to have these companies come in and map it out and turn the city of Birmingham into a video game. Uh, and to, in order to save time and save money, I just think that's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, that is really cool. And I mean, you can estimate how much time and money that would save, but you, you really don't know. I mean, you have past experiences, but, you know, the uh, talk about forward thinking there. And and we talk about it at least once extensively on every single show is the integration of technology into uh, what is a very mature concrete construction market. You're starting to mesh those two together and, and starting to bear fruit uh, from that relationship. It's really interesting because when you, if and when we're able to go to Connect or the World Concrete or these other great conferences and shows, the most, the fastest growing section, I should say, is uh, either CAD design or 
or this, you know, technical mapping and, and surveying and all the technology that's being implemented into the industry, um, that's really, that's got to be the fastest growing sector of, of the industry itself. And it's, it's exciting that, you know, people our age and even people younger than us, you might not want to go out and dig a ditch all day long, but you can still be a very integral part of the construction industry um, with, with this technology sector. Yeah, and for this to take that next step, above CAD, not just a 3D model or a 3D render, but make it something that's almost playable. Yeah, you can action. immerse yourself in it, yeah. Yeah, 100%. So then they go and make the presentations to the bureaucrats or whoever, and everyone can see, oh, okay, this is exactly what it looks like now, and this is what it's going to look like, and here's the things that we couldn't do, that we thought we could do, because there's all the things that are in the way, or if we still want to do that, we need to move all these other things. Yeah. So it was real easy to have that conversation because everybody could see it. Every, it was you know right there in front of your face. And I'll, I'll tell the people that uh, these were precast concrete bridge, bridge sections, 2,316 individual sections uh, mm -hmm. were part of this uh, bridge reconstruction. It's uh, it's interesting to always hear about this new technology and something we'll get in get into uh, with Hank, our guest today, is that you need types of people like Hank to push this type of technology to become more efficient and uh, you know to embrace these these new these new ways of doing things and these new technologies. You're going to need people to push that. And Hank is a, a great example of uh, just in the block industry and everything that he's seen and been able to do with his past jobs and his current job with new machines and plants and, uh, and, uh, and things like that and block. And then when you get into these DOT projects and how much they rely so much on current technology, like your LIDAR. I'd heard of LIDAR, oddly enough, through uh, hunting. They make hunting maps with LIDAR because you can just see such intricate changes in terrain that you wouldn't see on, especially uh, like Google, Google Earth or a topographical map that only shows elevation changes. That LIDAR will show mud holes it'll, it'll show just a little indentation in the side of a hill that you wouldn't see anywhere else so the fact that they're using that for construction and trying to be more efficient and how it's saving them tens of millions of dollars is awesome yeah it really is i would love to be the guy that has to pitch that to all these politicians in birmingham like you ha you have these 50 60 70 year old people who've done nothing but the law related jobs and political related jobs and here comes this person in there like i can make a map of your city that looks almost real and it's going to save you this much money like what are you going to say to that <laughs> and even if they're like an, of an engineering background they're like oh we've been using 2d blueprints forever right oh we know how to do that we can machine this and do that oh get out of here with that because who knows how much this costs right probably millions right so they had to come in and save millions on top of that to make it worthwhile and these same politicians are those guys that we were talking about either was it the previous episode or some couple episodes ago that all they do is they patch asphalt every four years when their terms <laughs> their terms are getting re-upped so yeah. that's all they know about road construction it's like oh i can i can make this look pretty right before my my re-election and everything's okay Oh, that tax money is going to be scarce. 2020, nobody was driving. All those uh, gas taxes, nobody was buying gas. 
it's going to be rough up here in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you could you could charge whatever you want for gas and put whatever gas tax you want on there. But when people aren't going anywhere, it's hard to fund new roads and new bridges. And Pennsylvania's got a lot of them. It's going to be rough. Yeah, so we'll see what we'll see what happens there. What did you find, Josh? Uh, so, something real quick, and it ties in with our guest. Like like I said earlier, um, Hank worked for Besser for a long time, um, and they're out of Michigan, right? Headquartered out of Michigan somewhere. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I believe. But anyway, their CEO uh, Kevin Curtis is just announced that he's stepping down, retiring. Um, in April 2021. Now, the current president, Ryan Susick, is going to be his uh, successor, and I think that's been planned for quite a while now. But um, Mr. Curtis has been in the industry for 43 years. Um, and it's important that the CEO of a very well-known, and I would say the leader in, in CMU machinery, um, you know, he's, he's retiring and, and good on him because he's really steered a, a great company in the right direction for many years. But it it got me thinking about how you have people come and go in every industry, in every company, in every job. But it just seems to me that in the construction industry specifically, and specifically the concrete construction industry, it's very common to see people who stay with the same company or in the same job for 30, 40 years plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now, I mean, your your office jobs, people who maintain a, a cubicle or or an office job in general, uh, the average lifespan for a job there is around six years. You know, it, almost twice a decade, people are moving jobs, move, moving positions. And in the concrete industry, it's it's common for people to stay for three, four decades. I'm wondering what your guys' thoughts are on that. Well. I think um, I don't know how to word this. I think when you get into like these plant managers, uh, like block plant managers, I know several block plant managers that have traveled around the country at different block plants for the past, you know, few decades, 20 years or so. And and uh, they've worked in North Carolina. They've worked on the East Coast. They've worked on the West Coast. They've worked down in Florida and they've just went everywhere. And I'm curious to know if those you know 20 30 almost 40 year tenured people what positions do they hold in the in the within the company are they presidents or are they you know truck drivers or where where do those guys lie as far as on the totem pole and in a concrete company well they could have risen they started as truck drivers and gone who knows where Mm -hmm. but i think there's a sense of loyalty in the construction industry, when you're with a good employer who's taking care of you, allows you to take care of your family, I think there's a real sense of loyalty. And I think we, I think we've had this conversation before, uh, offline, where there's a, a a real synergy between or similarity between people who are of an agriculture mindset, the, the farmers, the, those kind of guys, and the construction world, and really the concrete world. I feel like if you took the same person is a very similar personality type that he could either be raising cattle or is making concrete. It just depends on where his priorities are. And so when you have a guy like that, uh, loyalty tends to be a big deal. They stick with what got them there. You know, you go to a farm and you see they're using the same brand of equipment that they were using three decades ago because it's been good to them. I feel like they kind of carry that kind of mindset over into the work world and they're like well i'm going to stick with this company because they've been good to me 
I see that a lot. Yeah. Well, and, and especially now, it's it's harder and harder to find good help. So you would imagine that uh, two things are going on at the same time. You have someone who's more uh, not susceptible. That's ter- that's the wrong word to use. <laughs> someone who's more likely to practice loyalty and have that kind of mindset and those kind of values. But at the same time, companies know that it's hard to find good help nowadays. So when they find somebody who's willing to show up on time, willing to work, has their head screwed on straight, and, and who wants to rise in the company, they give them every opportunity to do so. Both of those things could be working together to, to promote and to provide those 30, 40-year employees. Well, another way I see the similarity is if you're working on a farm, you got to figure out how to fix whatever it is out in the field that's broke. It's, you got to tend that field or manage those animals that day, and this needs to be fixed, so you figure out how to do it. Well, the concrete guys, the guys working at the plants, have a very similar mindset. Like, oh, just show me how to fix this, and I'll fix it. And you become very handy and very good at you know working around the shop or working on the trucks or out in the field. Nobody's over there going, well, I'll just wait on somebody to come fix this for me. No, you get out there and you unstick the chute. You figure out why these things aren't working, and you make them work. Right. What do you know about farmer fixing, Joey Bell? <laughs> yeah, let's ask that. We're uh, we're already about thirty minutes into this. We don't need to go another eight hours. I <laughs> 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 will say that uh, I saw I saw my father who father was uh, was a full time farmer growing up, and he he raised twenty one hundred acres of beans and wheat and uh, and uh, corn, and then he also had two hundred Angus cattle. Uh, mama cows that had cat that had calves every year and he had 120 uh chester white sows pigs that had at least one or two litters of pigs every year so he kept busy and i saw that man keep an entire operation running with you know duct tape vice grips and wd-40 so and uh, i remember at some of these tank installations we've done at some of our customers and engineering would come down and, you know, they help, they help out. And, uh, Kevin Lord would have, he would always have like just a pair of channel locks in his back pocket. And that was what he would work with all day, every day. If he needed a socket, but he had his, uh, channel locks, he'd use his channel locks and he'd <laughs> use those vice grips and everything. And I always gave him grief about it saying that he was just like an old farmer. He just carried those pair of pliers around <laughs> in his pocket. And that's what he fixed everything with. But going back to what you said, Paul, that's what you got to do at a plant. You know, when we're when we were paving, you know, a couple thousand yards a day, and you didn't and you broke down, you didn't get on the horn with you know Rexcon or whoever made the plant. You just got opened up your toolbox and you listened for where the the weird noise was coming from, and you just grabbed a handful of tools and you went up there and just started tightening and trying to fix things by yourself because you know you can't waste a day or multiple days waiting on some service guy to come out there you need to patch it up and at least get through the day and then worry about it later yeah absolutely and block plants are notorious for that I mean, we're talking ready mix right there but we know we're gonna have hank on there and block plants something breaks every single day so you have to know how to fix things diagnose them fix them quickly so you start making more blocks. Right, right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to talk with Hank about, about that. I'm sure he's got plenty of stories. He's been all over the place. So not only is he uh, very well equipped to fix block plants here in this country, but he's also done some fixing of block plants uh, over in other countries as well, um, which, which provides its own special set of challenges. So 
Uh, without further ado, we'll get in with our interview with Hank Stevens, the plant manager for Rebels Block. Hank, thanks for joining us, brother. And, you know, for people that don't know, you've been all around. You've been all over the country and worked uh, in several block facilities. Uh, give us a little bit of your background. Well, see, I think I started this like a little over 25 years ago. And I was based out of a plant in Palestine, Texas. that was a family-owned plant, Palestine Concrete and Tile, owned by the Smith Brothers. I was there for a little over 20 years. And... Uh, Wait a minute, I've been in this a little longer, 25 years, but that's a different story. <laughs> uh, so, uh, of course, we merged and became Southwest Headwaters, uh, all the different corporation names through that. And uh, then I left there and I went to work for Besser. And that's when I traveled. Uh, I've been from Israel to Guam to Japan, all over the United States. I mainly did the ASB servo drives. Uh, I probably installed more than anybody. I put them on all of their machines. Uh, I did the first V312, the first Dynapack, the first Ultra Pack. I'm not the Ultra Pack, but the, the six at a time, the Super Pack. Uh, I stayed with Bester a few years, and then, of course, I put in this plant here at Revels here in Houston, and uh, Blake was wanting to go. Uh, do some things differently and so he contacted me and we worked out a deal and uh, now I'm back in the park plant uh, doing production and, or well I'm fixing to do a new install right now so I guess I'll still do installs also so what's the new install uh, we're going to put in a different machine uh, we run a lot of products here like cylinders uh, it's all for foundation work in the Houston area. You know, we're basically sitting on these bayous and, uh, or they call them bayous and just overgrown creeks to me. But anyway, <laughs> there's nowhere for the water to run off here in Houston. And so the ground of course is, uh, that gumbo land and it holds this moisture. And so <clears throat> they have a lot of issues with foundations all over this place. I've found out. So we run quite a few of what they call these cylinders that they actually push into the ground and get into bedrock or a hard ground. And then they build up off of that and support the, the slabs to keep them from cracking. And yeah, they've got a big mess here. And so we're just one little part of trying to fix it. There's they're uh, like slab jack in the house and they put one cylinder in, drive it down to the ground, put another cylinder up there drive that down in the ground so now you got two cylinders stacked on top of each other and then a third and then a fourth and they just keep driving them and driving them and driving them until they hit something solid am i getting that right yeah, you got it exactly right okay and so what were the challenges in formulating the design that could be that strong in a dry cast situation well of course you know active gel was a large help in that um we um it's a lot of cement content and it's controlling your moisture is one of the main things. Uh, you've got so much cementitious in it and you're activating that thermal energy inside so quick that you've got to have moisture in there to keep it from drying the inside of it out so fast that it, it makes it crumbly. So moisture is a real huge thing on making these. 
Uh, as far as making them on a machine, you just slow your machine down, and they have a, a long feed and a long finish time. And you actually, when you get through making them, when they come out of the machine, a guy like my boss, you know, Blake, he can actually stand on them as they're coming out of the machine. Me, I, I'm not that graceful, so <laughs> I, I can't stand on them like that. But they're that solid when they come out of the machine. And within uh, 24 hours, uh, I've got the machine that I've got is kind of a hand-built machine. It'll go 10,000 PSI. In 24 hours, I'll stick them in it, and it won't even think about breaking them in 24 hours. They're not quite 10,000 PSI like you would do in a lab, but it's just a test I do here, and I put 10,000 pounds of pressure against it just to see. I put pressure against it just like they're pushing them in the ground, so that's how I test them here. And uh, one goes off at 10,000, it'll definitely make you get out of the way because it's they're, they're pretty loud when they go off. <laughs> yeah, now, absolutely. Another simple test we do, and y'all find this quite humorous, but you take one and you hold it on the ends, and you just kind of toss it up in the air and let it hit the concrete. When it does, if it bounces, you know it's good. If it doesn't bounce, then we've got a problem. And that's, <laughs> that's why I, I don't. Uh, where, where can I find that test in the ASTM handbook? You, you can never find that test. That's a test invented by an older gentleman uh, many years ago, and he always said, if it'll bounce, it's good concrete. Now, well, he's always been right because if it bounces, it, it'll work. But uh, they're they're labor intensive. Um, if you've ever, I have been to these job sites where they do. I have been under one of the houses, and uh, it's amazing how they do it. These gentlemen start in digging under the slab with just shovels and their, whatever their hands, I guess, and they create all these tunnels under this house and get down to the beams of the house, and that's where they'll go and start setting pads for them to start raising this house. They'll raise them as much as four and five foot. I mean, it's no problem. You just crawl around under all these little tunnels. And they have a truck that comes out and can actually press. the. Some guys do it with a jack. And other guys have uh, like the porta power packs that uh, it's uh, they, they press them in one at a time with cylinder. And then the other ones have this house truck come out. It's got this huge hydraulic system on it. And all these rams that they can put up under the house with all these. And then the guy can control lifting of the house. And that's very neat to see. And it's a lot of technology in this. And it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, it's, it, it's, it's amazing what they can do. I just wonder what happens to these cylinders after the land or the earth is moving and stuff. So I'm not for sure really where these cylinders are going. So if y'all see any floating up in your area, just put them back down. You know, we're trying to keep them here in Houston. <laughs> so, so you mentioned a couple of different ways to, um, you know, to, to set those blocks. Is the method dependent upon the applicator or company, or does the method uh, change with how far or how high you need to jack the house? It, it both, in a sense. Both, uh, see, they have some that's what they call cord, and they'll actually have like a three-quarter hole all the way through them, and they use a rebar as uh, guiding it, each cylinder together. Some of them uh, are just using a solid cylinder, and it depends – like if they're going real deep, because I've they told me they pushed as many as 17, 18 in the ground. And, you know, that to me, that's, you know, this is 12 inches tall, six inches in diameter. 
and you push them 17 down, that's you're pushing a long ways down. That tells you how bad the, the soil is around here. But I often wonder what keeps them together. But they've been doing this. You know, you have companies that are like 2000 industry, uh, OSHAM. These are the big names, big hitters in this. And they've been doing this a long time. And and somehow they they I don't know how they keep them together, but but somehow they do. And they put so many under them for one thing. They're they're all over. I mean, I don't know what their spacing is. I'm going to say somewhere around four or five foot where I've seen them on the outside of the house where they have their holes dug to where they're lifting. And that's where they'll start putting these cylinders in. And I don't know when they use the cord or when they use a solid where that that falls in. But I know that when they they're going real deep was when they start using a lot of the cord ones and uh and the weight of the house has a lot to do with it the way it's way it's broke i mean because that's sad to say i've seen brand new homes that i've seen just right through the living room out through the garage the slab was split open and you could see a inch and a half gap in it and i'm thinking you know this is a wreck and by the time they get through with it i mean they do amazing work and uh i I, I I don't know the longevity. That's something I want to find out. You know, I'm in this area of cylinders. I've only been doing this for a little while. I've made cylinders in other plants before, but of course, I'm more in touch with the people that are installing now. Uh, so I'm learning more as I go on this too. That's interesting, uh, Hank. You talking about that? I just bought a house last year, and I had to have my foundation uh, repaired with those big they. They use steel beams. They didn't use yes, concrete. And just it's exactly how you're saying they got these jacks all around the crawl space of my house. Yes, and sir. there's a lifetime warranty on them. So I mm-hmm. wonder if it is different with the steel versus the concrete and why that is. I, I know they give a warranty, but that's something I, I really need to find that out, you know, because I have people ask me these questions. Uh, but, yes, I'm familiar with – they. Um, actually, I went through a little class with 2000 Industry, and they kind of showed me how this works and uh, all these things uh, in order to help me make the cylinder better for them because where the problem lies, concrete will break. And mm-hmm. the harder you make it, the stronger you make it, it can shear, and it will shear from several reasons. Either it was made improperly or it wasn't enough moisture, or it's being pressed wrong. And if you get an angle on one of these cylinders while you're pressing with, you know, 10,000 PSI, you can shear it just like it's in a splitter. And so that they made these plates that go on top of the cylinder that keep them aligned when they're pushing it. And that's pretty neat. Um, and all the different, different things they've made to do this with the, uh, they, they have the steel ones like uh, they, did on your home i've seen some of that i've also seen one that they did with like a a pipe configuration that had like a uh, look at it like an arrow you know it had a tip on it that they could it actually went in the ground they could keep adding sections to this pipe i've seen there several different kinds uh osham has some real neat information on their website and so does industry 2000 uh that you can find some really neat information about it um it's 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 amazing that they can fix it uh as bad as some of these i've seen here in houston and uh of course y'all know we're pretty successful having floods around here so i mean it just like i mean it don't take a lot to rain to flood around here but it will flood in a hurry 
Mm-hmm. And so these places around what they call the bayou, there's a lot of older homes that are very nice homes. And uh, the insurance companies got tired of paying for all this. And so they told them either they could, you know, remove them from the home or they can raise the home up. So, if you know, the floodwaters come that they won't go into their house again. And, and so that's what they did. And what we did on a bunch of those, of course, they raised them. They stabilized the soil and everything under it. But then we used, you know, block and uh, we split place block or burnish block, whatever the customer chose. And it built like a wainscot all the way around the house. And what they do is just lift the whole house up, say, four foot. And they just connect all the plumbing and everything back. And then they pour footing all the way around the house and then block the whole house up and then have runners underneath. And they'll just pick up, you know, I'm talking two-story homes and all. They raise right up and the same house is still there. It's just about four foot taller. The uh, the block, the split, split face on the outside is decorative in that sense, right? It's decorative, but it's also when it's grouted, you know, you still have your compressive strength. Uh, it's not like a high strength block or nothing, but you've got the beams that are underneath that they built the columns and all underneath are usually a high strength block or a poured concrete. That's really what's holding it, but they still grout the outside so that it's, uh, you know, it's a solid you know, foundation. And uh, it's very neat how they do it. Uh, I've learned a lot about it since I've been here. And, and, you know, we tailor a lot to that mark because we're right here at the bayou. I mean, from the plant here, you can be there in about three or four minutes with no traffic, which is never. So add 20 minutes to that. (laughs) Well, for a very brief moment in time in Houston, Texas, the COVID-19 had it so that y'all had uh, very little traffic there for what, like three weeks and everybody in Houston was like, screw it. We're going to do whatever we want. Exactly. It was, that was very weird coming to work at, I come to work at weird hours. Sometimes I come to work at two in the morning. Sometimes I come to work at five in the morning. Sometimes I don't get to work at all. So, I mean, but there, I was coming to work those first few days and I'm like, what, what I thought something was messed up. I thought, did I get up too early? Did I, you know, did I not set my alarm? What's going on here? Because there was no traffic coming all the way into the plant. And I live, I live approximately 45 minutes from here because, you know, I'm country and I just can't, all this concrete makes me nervous. Even though I work in that industry, I got to get where it's trees and, you know, fields and cotton and corn growing. I just, I'm lost without it. And so I moved to a little town called Needville. It's outside of Houston, out off 36. I'm closer to the coast than I am to work. And if that tells you anything. But anyway, um, there was no traffic. And we um, we worked every day because of we're under, um, with FEMA on these, these house projects, raising it. Uh, we're contracted with FEMA to make uh, blocks for them whenever they release so many houses, you know, we have to produce those blocks for FEMA. So uh, that kept us working through all of this. It was kind of different for a month or so, but everything's kind of, everybody's kind of really back to normal around here. They just wearing a mask and nobody talks to anybody anymore, but that, that's all right with me because I didn't understand half of them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so tell me through this uh, new line. So right now you guys have one line producing block, and every time you got to make a new part, whether it's uh, a, a cylinder or an 8-inch or 12-inch or corners, 4-inch, whatever it is you're making, you change out the molds, just like every yes. other block plant. Uh, so now you're going to put in a completely separate line just to make the cylinders. Well, Am I hearing that no, right? No, I'm actually, we're taking part of that equipment out. And we're putting new in. Uh, we're removing the servo pack. Yeah, I really wanted yeah, to get okay. in that with you. Yeah, go ahead. All right, so we decided, um, I, we've changed the front end out on this machine. And, you know, we had several issues with transducers and the vibration. And so, in all of this, the expense of running the servo pack did not fit the way we run here and, and the products we run. It, the machine is very capable of running all kind of products, but the way we run here and the maintenance on the servo pack just wasn't working out for Rebels. And so we opted to go with the Model 1600, which is known for making 12 high products. And that was one thing the servo pack was holding us back on was 12 high products. It, it hasn't been tested at 12 high. And then they were going to have to change the inner frame again to go 12 high. And that's where we had our problems in the beginning. So that was one of our options for removing the servo pack and putting in the, the sixteen hundred. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, Hank. Hey, hey, time out, time out, time out. We got a lot of people listening to this All right. that don't know a lot about block, and right. even those of us that do know a little bit, uh, the servo pack is a new animal. It's a yes, state of the art, top of the line. That's the reason you're at Rebels is because you're one of the people that actually know what makes this machine special. So take a moment for us, please. Talk about the servo pack from Besser, what it is, uh, why it's so enticing, why it is top of the line, and then why you switch then to the 1600. You know, the 12 inch high was giving you a problem. But talk a little more about the servo pack and then why you ended up having to go away from it. Okay, servo pack is a hydraulic machine that Besser built, which is, you know, it's not their first hydraulic machine. The Besco pack is a hydraulic machine. A lot of people don't know that because the Besco pack is mainly overseas. Uh, I don't know. There's maybe a couple in the States, very few, but the hydraulic machines that Besser did make the Besco pack, there are several of them overseas, Mexico and all over. Uh, so it, this wasn't nothing new. Everybody think, oh, Besser got into hydraulic machines. No, Besser's been in hydraulic machines for years. Um, they have some very intelligent hydraulic people that work for them. Of course, they bought out Lithobar, which they gained some more intelligent hydraulic people. So they created this hydraulic machine, and it was a machine that it's a completely, everything is adjustable from the HMI or the panel view. And there's only like a couple of adjustments that you even use a wrench for. And one of them would be, well, you use the same bar to put in the, the cutoff bar. And uh, as far as adjusting heights, as far as adjusting the feed drawer, as far as adjusting the cutoff bar, everything is done from a push button. You can actually change the height of a block by pushing a button a half a millimeter to a meter or one meter. You just push a button and, you know, it'll raise or lower the block. It's all done with lasers. Uh, they're very sensitive. They're very accurate. Um, the, it runs a feeder belt instead of the open hopper like the old machines used to. Mm -hmm. So you can put mm -hmm. the exact amount of mud in the mold that you need. Um, 
once you get that figured out, I mean, it's, it's just, you got to figure that part out, but it does do that. It runs, it has the vibrators are built into the inner frame and it's, uh, it's got twin 13,000 pound vibrators on each side that alternate. And uh, you can control the amplitude and the frequency and RPM, of course, of these vibrators and and do a lot of different things with vibrations that you could not do with conventional machinery. Um, you can actually you can bring it into a real low vibration on the feed when you're doing something, you know, not a very deep product. And you can fill the box really smoothly and not boil the mud out of the box. And then you can set the head in, bring the vibration in to finish it off. A lot of neat things like that, that, that Besser's older machines, you couldn't do that on. And uh, you were just running your vibrators and, you know, it was what it was. And now with this, you have complete control when you want them to start, how hard you want them to hit, uh, how you want them to finish. Uh, there's nothing on this machine that, that I know of that you can't change from you can, there's only one adjustment you've got to lock down where the, the feed drawer comes into the back of the mud pan. Uh, there, that's a bolt adjustment right there. Once you get it, you have to move this adjustment. Other than that, you do everything with the push of the HMI. You change the mode, you just go to the HMI, go to the mode change screen, punch a button, and it brings the mode out, sets it out on a set of arms. You pick the mode up, sets another one in, it puts it in, it'll go, changes through the heights. Uh, it put, retains all your settings and pretty much you can leave a batch in the hopper, change the mode and start it up in 13 minutes. And I've done it. Yeah. And, that, uh, yeah. When I first saw it, that's what I was telling you guys. I said, you got to see this machine at Rebels Blog. These dudes change out the molds in 15 minutes. And for people who aren't familiar with block plans, the changing of the molds can take two hours and it's exactly. incredibly labor intensive, incredibly. These steel molds are huge. They're right. heavy. You got multiple people turning massive bolts to get these things loose, get them right. out, get them changed in. So uh, the injury is, is always concerned. The sure. downtime is always concerned. Damaging a $70,000 mold is a concern. And now you've got the servo pack that, takes that all the equation, makes everything much easier, much more efficient. Sure. And, and a lot of manufacturers have created that and they're, and they're getting away from their old way of thinking and they're, they're modernizing the troubled things that are even, even the mixer people are getting on board and like we're looking at what they call a new washout system. And uh, it actually goes in the mixer and it actually washes the mixer out in between each batch to keep having buildup in it. And it uses high pressure oscillating spray nozzles. Uh, it's a very neat technology. They're using it to clean out ready mix trucks. And uh, all of these things are finally coming into the block business to make our life just a little bit easier. You know, the old days of chipping hammers and spending a day and a half in there cleaning the drum of a mixer is not real fun, but, it, you know, it has happened. And uh, we spend a lot of time cleaning the mixer. That's one thing people don't realize. Every time we change colors, and if we run any extended amount of colors, we have buildup in our mixer and you have to clean that out or it will come into the next block exactly where you don't want it. If it's a split face box, it's going to end up dead in that split. It's a miracle how it does that, but I promise you, you can throw a cell phone in a mixer and that cell phone will come out dead in the middle of the split of one of those blocks. I've seen that happen. So, yeah, the middle. and I have seen that happen. I've seen gloves. I've seen a cell phone. 
uh, all kind of different shades of color because if you didn't get the mixer cleaned out, they'll always show up right in the middle of that split every time. And uh, a cell phone was the funniest one I ever saw. The little antenna, it was a, well, I think they called it a StarTag phone back in the Altel days. And the little antenna was still on it and it was raised up and you could see it before it split it. I thought, now this is kind of funny, you know. I went on and split it because, I mean, of course, the phone wasn't any good, but I wanted to see if it split the phone in half, but it didn't. <laughs> Hank, how many of these new plants are across the country? They seem so innovative. It seems like only a select few people would have these things. It's, you don't have to name companies or names or anything right. like that, but I'm just curious to see how many are out there right now. Okay, Besser's line, you got to start. You got the servo pack, and then you have the select. Well, the servo pack is called the Classic, and then they have another one that's called the Select, which is a hydraulic machine. It's an up-down machine, like that's what we call them, an up-down machine, and it uses a different vibration than the servo pack, uh, but it still falls along in this class line of machines like the servo pack. It's a lot cheaper than the servo pack, but it still it makes a great block, and so you've got that. There as far as servo packs, there's probably, I know there's one in Israel. I've been to Israel. And, uh, and then there's several in the United States. Like I said, I won't name plants, but there's all over there from Texas to North Carolina to in between uh, Pennsylvania. There's, they're, they're everywhere. They're, um, people don't let, you know, they don't really, I don't know, people in a block plant, we're kind of stubborn. I mean, to be honest with you. And uh, we, don't, we don't want you playing with our toys, really. I mean, it's we're kind of selfish that way. And, and it's not that we mean to be that way. It's just like we think we got that little niche in the world and we're going to hold on to it. So we don't we don't talk about it a whole lot to everybody, you know. And But there's more out there than people really know. And then the competition of Besser, which Columbia – Pathfinder, uh, you know, as far as Columbia, they've got what uh, they've got a machine that does automatic mode change and everything. Also, uh, of course, your big board machines, they'll do it. Uh, the palletizing systems are coming on. They're using a lot of robotics now, which I informed my boss the other day that we were going to get one of those. And he's like, when? I said, pretty quick. And uh, he don't believe me, but I'm going to get one. You just hold on. It's, uh, it, it's amazing what we can do now because you have they they've learned how to get all the strength out of the different axes and hold these like i seen one running the other day and it was clamping 15 8 inch blocks picking them up turning them and putting them on a pallet and moving so swiftly and smoothly it was amazing and you know it's picking a tear up at a time uh they told me it would do the same thing with this patio block that they run. It's called a deck block, which is basically shaped like kind of like a pyramid. And um, to watch a machine handle those and and to see that, it, it shows you what's come. We've come a long way in this world with with the electronics and the, and the mechanics of this. I started out when we were still relays and timers, and and you know I thought we were high class then, but. You know, I find out we weren't, you know, it's, uh, it, there's a lot of change in the years I've been doing this. 
you don't feel too bad. There's still some guys out there that make block with a stopwatch and just a belt and a water yep. hose. <laughs> yep, there he is. And uh, I went to a plant one time in Georgia, and when I drove up, there was a pitchfork leaning up against the building, and I thought, what in the world? And I found out what that pitchfork was for. They still use material to heat their water that goes into their curing system. They use a hot water heater, basically. And they burn trash and stuff in it, and that's how they heat the water. It was the dangest thing I ever saw, and it worked. I mean, so, I mean, you can, I, I sat here and I thought, a pitchfork of all things at a block plant. I don't think I've ever seen that, but <laughs> here we are. And uh, you learn a lot. In Guam, they don't use a curing system. Well, it's 92, pretty much about 92 to 95% humidity all the time, except for 30 minutes a day. And around three o'clock, it rains for about 30 minutes, and it's the best time in the world there because it's so humid and hot 24 hours a day. They don't need curing system. They just have a shed roof that's open to atmosphere, and they park the racks under that. And when they get all their racks run, they go home, and they come back the next morning and start running those blocks, and they're fine. I mean, but it's, it's almost like a perfect curing room. That place right there, it was something to see, but... Ah, that was the most humid place I've ever been. And uh well Israel was Israel was pretty warm too. I was there when it was pretty hot too. Heck, in that regard, you talk about all the different places you've been. Uh yes, you've installed equipment all over the world. I don't know I don't know if you know the answer to this or not, but how many people like you are out there? Like how many people does Besser or Columbia or, or you know other companies like that? How many people do they employ that are able to go around the world and just install this equipment? Besser has like like six installers right now. Uh, Columbia will be pretty close to the same. Uh, so much of the work is done in-house. Um, they actually test the equipment before it gets shipped out to us, and which is uh, something they started doing. And, and they'll actually hook everything up and run it. And, you know, pretty much try to dial it in right there uh, at their facility before it ever gets shipped to us, which is makes it a lot easier on the install guys. When I was doing the ASVs, I was getting them, you know, just right out of the box. They had been tested and that put a lot on me to get that system up running for the customer. And now they have all of the stuff in the in-house to test it. They can actually mock the vibrators up. And they can actually tune the motors right there before they ever ship them out, which is a big plus. Because when you're having to tune motors, uh, you're on a phone with a set of headphones on like we are now. And and you're telling the engineer what the motor's doing. And you've got to be able to hear what the motor's doing. And he's got to be able to dial it in because you're setting the gains on those motors. Uh, it's kind of like uh, if you look at a CB radio. And you have your gain or your squelch control and how you kind of dial it in to pick up that channel or whatever. And you do the same thing with the, uh, with the servo motors. And uh, it's, there's a setting in there. It's called gain setting. And they can go in there and increase it or decrease it. And you have to listen to what that motor's doing, which is something I got very good at. Or I'm the one that actually started doing that because we were having some machines that were sluggish and some that would run great. And... I kept telling one of the engineers, I said, there's something wrong. We're doing something wrong. And that's when we started setting the gains on these motors. And it tremendously makes the machine run different. So there's, to answer your question, there's not many, but there's still quite a few. A lot of us have, 
a lot of them have gotten old, the ones that used to install. And because and, uh, it, it takes a different person to install. You're gone a lot. Um, you're on the road. I mean, I've probably missed every holiday there was to miss. And uh, you stay out so much uh, because you never know when something as simple as an air conditioning switch can keep you from leaving a job. I wouldn't leave a job if, if something like that was acting up. I'd stay till the park got in. And when you're in uh, Belgium and you're waiting for an air conditioner switch because something as simple as an air conditioner switch went out and which there's air conditioners that cool the panels because these servo drives permit or they, they make a tremendous amount of heat. And so, you know, without that air conditioner working, the panel will over temp. And so I, I wouldn't leave one that I knew the air conditioner wasn't properly working and all that. So, yeah, I got hung over in Belgium for, you know, an extra week waiting on a switch to get to Belgium. And those little things are what can slow you down. I don't know how many I did for Besser. I know I, know I have installed a, a ASV SMD in three days. Uh, that's a long three days, longer than most people want to spend. But there was a rush on this job, and, and I had some great guys that worked with me that were from the plant facility there, and and they everything went great. And I do a, I'm, I guess the older plants, I started in older plants, so I understand the wiring in them. And the guy asked me, he said, man, you wired that whole panel. And I don't think you looked at the print over twice. I said, no, I really only looked at it once. And uh, he started laughing. And I said, man, I hate to say this, but I memorize that stuff. And, and, and when you're a tech, you do memorize stuff. Like I know the Cuba guy for Besser, um, uh, I can call him right now, ask him any question on any series of Cuber that he's ever worked on. And he's like a book. He just, he's like a book. He's memorized all the settings, all the adjustments. And I watch him set them with them drive, not even restarted. And he knows where to set the older Cubers, you know? So when they start up, they're pretty much, all you got to do is some fine adjustments. You've got to do it for a long time to get that. The ASVs, I got to where I could set them and start one up and make a block right out of the bat, and it would be a sellable block, which was my goal. I, I always had a goal, and, and my goal was to always, from the first block out of the machine, is a sellable block. And when it didn't happen, you know, I kind of kicked myself. But when it did happen, I knew I'd done everything right. Well, Hank, when we're working at Ready Mix and Precast, a lot of the times the concrete mix design it dictates everything. And you talk about sure. sellable block. We're, we always talk about sellable concrete. When we're trying to optimize mixed designs, we're like, would we sell that? Would we put our name on this mud? Exactly. And this whole time we've been talking, we've been talking about what happens after the mixed design. So much right. is dependent uh, on the equipment and what happens after it's gone into the mold or after it's uh, been in the mixture. Uh, but I did want to take a second and talk about concrete mix designs and concrete block and how that differs from ordinary concrete. Could you touch on your process for sure. what you do to design for a block? Okay, that's yes, sir. That's a good question. Uh, actually, that the, the answer to this question it changes with the material and with the time and and where the material is coming from. Uh, our lightweight aggregates have changed tremendously uh, from a typical just a fired shell to a this still a fired shell, but it it's so it's so porous and so much air in it that it'll actually float in water. Uh, 
which is not good for making a block. We want it to absorb water. And uh, that's been a challenge, messing with some of these new aggregates, getting them to pull in the water so that we can make a nice block. Because if the aggregates are floating, they're not drawing any water in. So when you make that block, of course, you've made a dry block. It might look wet to you, but it's still dry because the moisture that it's pulled into the aggregates is where it's going to be spent when it's curing. And so that changes with the material. Our sands are changing as, of course, you know, the further they get into the pit, the sands change. And uh, so I guess I've been doing it a long time. I always just, I like to take a batch and when we come up with a design, the top sand we're using, the type of rock, what the customer wants, it's a, it's a, it's pretty much a, we have an educated guess, but it's still a trial and error. And when a batch is right, we do a simple little thing with our hands. Some people squeeze it and smash it and look at it and all that. That don't really tell me a whole lot. Well, I just take it and I put it in my hand, I squeeze it, and then I push my hands together. And when I open my hands up, if I see that smear of cementitious on my hand that's wetted, then I know we're real close. We can dump it and we can go on and make a block with that. If you don't get that smear on your hands, you don't have enough water for one thing. So you're not going to make a good product. And that's just something you learn. Everybody's got their own way of doing it. Some people look at the way it sheets off the blades of a mixer on a ribbon mixer. And when it's sheeting off, you can actually see it. It looks like layers coming off. You know your batch is right when it gets to that sheeting part. Other people, you know, they touch it, pat it, whatever they want to do. So I guess some people smell it. But I don't know. But I always, the whole <laughs> hand trick of smearing it has worked for me. Um I can get in more detail if you'd like, you know, what, what amount of sand, what amount of aggregate. Uh, everybody's got their own ideas on that. I know that you use quality, the best quality you can get, you'll produce a quality block. If you're getting trash sand, you're going to produce a trash block. The sands are so sifted now and, and so screened, they're pulling all the small rock out of it. And all we're getting is just the crystalline sand. So you have to add that rock back into it to make it into a good block. And and luckily, we're able to buy the smaller grades of aggregates or rocks and add it back with our sands. We can blend our materials. Where ready mix, I, I'm not for sure. I don't. I've been around a lot of ready mix. How they do it, uh, I, I know they got rock and they got sand. And I don't know how they blend and all that. But we use a batching system and we can blend uh our different aggregates together to create what we're looking for um it's yes there's a lot of trial and error uh as far as when you were making a color block we we know basically what we want but sometimes we have to add a little more of the reds or a little more of the orange to make the tint come out where we want that honestly is just a guess we We've done it enough that we think we know where we're at. Sometimes we hit it right off. Other times we have to add a little more colorant to it. Um, it's, it's sometimes it's your aggregates fooling with you, um, especially when they want a lightweight in a colored block. That's that's one I always hated, but they some people like it, and uh, that can that will change you know how your block looks and your texture tremendously. Uh, it's a lot of batching is I have an Excel spreadsheet that's 
probably about 15 to 16 years old that I keep using. And uh, I don't know how many bash designs are in it, but I still go back to it today and I add to it and I take reference from it. You know, there's a lot of information. You know, of course, Besser has their information. Columbia has theirs. Uh, and everyone uses a certain percentage of sand versus aggregate versus cement. Uh, I was taught a long time ago, don't cut yourself short on cement. Active gel came out and that is something that I still learn with active gel every day. And I guess that's what keeps me interested in the product because of what it does for me. I, I know one thing, if I try to run the active gel and try to creep that cement or keep it up where I usually have it, that it will get very sticky very quick. And so it showed me a lot of things in doing that because uh, our high strength stuff, you know, we're still, we're kind of like, oh, we got to have this much cement in it. But active gel is teaching us a different thing. And the only way you learn this is by doing it, testing it, and going through time with it. You know, still 28 days tells you the answer. And, you know, we can guess all day long and think we're right, but we send it to the lab. And, you know, in about 10 days, we get a report back and we're going, yeah, we weren't right on that one. But that's, <laughs> that's how we learn. And, I mean, my system is very simple. It's uh, a lot of trial and error because I keep my mistakes just as well as I keep the good. And, and you know, Blake will see me digging through it every once in a while. He's like, what are you looking for? I said, man, I remember this years ago. I just got to find it. And, uh, you know, the answer is there. So that's why I keep the notes. I, I'd have to say I've done it the scientific way. And I've done it by walking out there, picking the sand up, running it through my fingers and picking the aggregate up, running it through my fingers and say, okay, this much of that and this much of this and put this much cement in it and I want this much water and let's go with it. And I, that, that's, I've done that too. But when I go back and look at my notes, it's something that I already wrote down. So I don't know why I just didn't go with that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's our only thing we really changed, like our lightweight batch design, of course, we changed it with the Actigel, and uh, which, of course, basically reduced our cementitious. And we've been playing with Actigel and and what it does in the feed and the finish part of it. So batch design changes, but it doesn't change. If you know, products make the batch design change. Like Actigel is is causes us to change, but we've learned that if we get too much cementation with the active gel, we get sticky. And then our blocks will start, you know, sucking and doing different things. And we're blaming it on all the wrong things when very simply we can drop a little bit of cementitious and we're back to where we were. And that's something that's kind of hard for me is, yes, to make a cheaper block, you can drop the cement. But when you let go of that cement, you know, that's kind of like letting go of our children. You know, we just don't like to do that. And there's a reason why <laughs> I was taught, you know, to run, you know, X pounds of cement per eight inch unit or 12 inch and, unit. And what's that. that, what's that number? So the people that are block guys here, the number that uh, you were trained on. Well, some people go off a three, two to a three, four. I've seen mm -hmm. it go yep. lower. If you're in a three, two to a three, four, it, you're going to make a fine block. I mean, yes, some people will frown on the cost of that, but. There's this one day things will happen like this. And 
you'll be sitting in your office and you get a phone call from a contractor and he says, hey, I forgot on my takeoff, I need some high-strength 10-inch block. I said, oh, wow, you did? And he goes, yeah, how long is it going to take you to run them? I said, about six weeks. And there's dead silence on the phone. I thought he passed out. And I said, man, I'm just kidding, man. How many you need? And he told me, I said, hey, let me call you back in about 10 minutes. So I went outside and I made sure I knew I had some because I was running them for the uh, George Bush Library over College Station. And uh, so I had to have some high strength around the water treatment deal or whatever. And so I knew I had some made. So I went out there. And of course, I had enough. And I grabbed one, threw it in the tester. And I just did a simple test on it. I just set it in the tester. And I, I put two sheetrock plates on it. And I turned the tester on. And it kept going and kept going. I got a little nervous. So I kind of eased over toward the door. And when it went off, you heard this pop and I mean, it seemed like the pressure tester jumped plumb up off the ground. I thought, yeah, they're good. And so I went and called this contractor back, and I said, yeah, these will work. And he said, well, when can I get them? I said, how about in about four or five hours? And he goes, do what? I said, well, you're in Moore, Oklahoma. I think we can get there in about four or five hours with a load. I got a truck sitting here. He goes, you're going to get them to me today? And I said, yeah, you're going to pay for them, but I'll get them to you. And uh, he said, okay. And so... You know, I, should, I didn't hear anything else more about it. Everything went fine. And several months later, I get a phone call from the same contractor. He goes, hey, you know them tennis block you made? I said, yeah, what about them? He goes, well, 26 kids and one teacher walked out of that building. Them tennis were made out of. The rest of the school is gone. I said, do what? He said, a tornado took it. I said, you got to be kidding. He goes, no, it's to the ground. He said, but those tennis are still hanging in there. I said, wow. So that'll make you think about cementitious and and stuff like that, you know. So that I always when I get you know, go to pulling, you know, trying to beat cost, beat cost, I think about that. And if I would have beat cost on that, what would have happened to those twenty six kids? And you know, not that I made the block that saved the world. No. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that, you know, for once in my life I put cement in a block and I did something right. <laughs> You know, but, <laughs> you know, that's uh, I think about that story a lot and I, try, I tell it to people. And, and uh, you know, it wasn't me that made the block. My guys made the block. They get all the credit. Um, it, you know, I had some great guys that worked for me that that I, that started batching back when you turned the conveyor belt on and you grabbed the handle on the hopper and you opened it up for a little bit. And you gave it a thousand three count and you shut it. Okay, that looks good. And then you open the other handle on the other hopper. Okay, two count and shut it. That's how they batched. And I, I, I mean, this guy was, I watched him do it for many years and it worked. And so I've seen people batch by hand like that. I've seen one guy run his batching system. He would dump material into his mixer and he'd watch the amps go up on the mixer. Okay, that's enough. And he would shut that one off and he would bring in the next one. And as the amps went up, he'd shut that one off. He knew how many amps he was pulling. He put the water in it. The amps got right where he wanted. He said, okay, we'll dump it. It's good. And I watched him make block, and I'm, the block were very good. So people do, like, some very primitive things when they have to, I guess. Um, so that question is very – it's a very hard one to answer with a single answer. But your batch designs – everybody's batch designs different changes, and they probably always will. Uh, we're always looking for extra strength right now at Rebels. We're making our blocks too strong, but I think it's because of active gel. That stuff is just, it, 
I mean, you know, it was supposed to be at 1900 and then they're going 2800. I don't know what's going on. But no, it's <laughs> still been a very big learning curve. It's uh, It's been fun to work with, though. Uh, talking about making concrete in uh, remote areas, Central America, South America, and watching guys just pulling levers and doing things by hands, methods that you're like, I don't know about that, but <laughs> it did make a block, but this might not be the way I want to do things. Joey might have a good story for us here. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Hank, you're talking about your travels and just like Paul was saying, I've been sent down to Brazil and Peru and Central America and Mexico, you know, none of the good parts of those countries because they right. don't put they don't put concrete plants at the resorts down there. You know what I'm no, saying? No, sir, they don't. You're exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, some of those curing houses like you're talking about, they're just pole barns, you know, off yep. in the edge of the woods there. And it's just so hot and humid. Like you were talking about in Guam, they just set them out. So long as they keep them in oh, the shade, yeah. you know, they don't overheat. Right. And uh, I was, I'm trying to think there was a uh, one little setup down in might've been Costa Rica or one of the little Central American countries that uh, they just mix their batch almost in a wheelbarrow and dump them in molds and they'd make decorative blocks and yep. stones that way. There's so many more. I mean, they would weld their own tools together like hammers and wrenches. They would just build stuff out of random scraps they had everywhere mm-hmm. else. And they'd somehow make block out of all this mess. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, you soon realize that, you know, the technologies that we're selling to American companies just isn't going to work for those guys down there. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen that. And I was watching a plant and it was in Mexico and I was actually doing like a video tech deal with them, trying to work it out over the phone. And and I was kept seeing to the side of the plant over there, you know, they were pulling these blocks off that weren't field right or something like that. And they weren't throwing them in a dumpster. They were setting them over on this rack, and there was this guy with this bucket of mud, and he's sitting there patching the blocks and fixing them. And I'm yep. like, what is that process called? And, oh, no, <laughs> we don't throw that away. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not – how do you bond that? And, you know, hey, <laughs> they did it their way, and it worked. And, and like, India was uh, – India's different. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they – um. I mean, of course, they used up all of their topsoil making earth brick, and they wondered why they had these dust storms. I mean, just <laughs> dust flying everywhere. And and they build these, like, domes, and they put these earth brick in them to cure them. And in the top of this dome, there's a, a lid or a hole, and the guy goes up on top, and he's been walking around all day collecting, you know, dried cow patties. You know, they they call it some kind of fuel or something. I said, no, no, no we got that in East Texas. And, and they literally <laughs> drop it down this hole, and that's how they create the heat inside these domes to cure these bricks. And I'm like, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And it works. I'm, I I can't believe it works, but it works. And um, you see a lot of stuff in different parts of the world, that's for sure. Uh, I don't know that they would – They'd have a hard time dispensing active gel over there. I mean, they, they probably could do it with an old Coke bottle. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it might work for them. But, you know, hey, uh, I worked in a division of a company called Flex Creek for Headwaters, and it was aerated concrete that I made. And uh, it would actually float in water. It was 50% air. And it was basically flash and a cementitious and some other chemicals and, it recreated this K 
cake that uh, actually you poured it in as a slurry. And then in about 15 minutes, it started to rise and we would pour like a four by 12 foot, you know, four by four by 12 foot cake and this stuff would rise just like a loaf of bread. And you trim the top of it off and then you cut it up into the blocks and, uh, you know, we made a lot of uh, cladding boards, uh, blocks and stuff with it. Uh, a lot of it went to New Zealand. Some of it went to Africa. But they still, like in Africa, that was a little different too. I didn't go to Africa. Uh, a man told me about this. They went to this village and they we shipped this cladding board over there and they built this small house out of it. And they didn't have any testing procedures that I know of that we've heard about in the real, in, you know, in the United States for sure. But uh, the chief of this small community, he looked at it and to see if it was strong enough to be suitable for him to live in. He's the only one in this little tribe that had a Jeep. And so he told the driver to get out. He gets in the Jeep and he runs it into the building. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, it didn't fall down. So he said it was good. I'm like, oh, man, I, 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 I don't know about that. but I, And I'm sure it would be, you know, because it's 50 percent air. It would absorb the hit. You know, it, it would probably work well, but I've never heard of that testing procedure. I think they're going to come out with it next year. Uh, I'm not for sure, though. Yeah, Hank, one more one more thing. Uh, earlier, we were, I was talking about, you know, the guy with the stopwatch and the oh, belt yeah. and the the aggregate belts going into the mixer that wasn't in some other country that was off in nebraska that was just a few years ago <laughs> i believe it i believe it i mean it's there are still some very old plants uh in the states uh, i've always said you know my ever since i i started out working on v312 Besser block machine three at a time cam machine old war horse they are just a hunk of steel that will run with parts broke in them, wore out, and they will make a quality sellable block completely wore out. They have so many adjustments on them. You got to pretty much be a walking genius, figure out how to adjust one. But once you do get it adjusted, it will make a quality sellable block and it'll do it all day long. And I always said, you know, we're going to be so selfish and we're going to destroy this world that we have. And when it's all said and done and ain't nothing but a pile of rubble left around, there's going to be some old boy with an old V312 or a six, Model 16 on top of a hill with that one swinging light bulb going. And you're going to hear that old machine running. He's going to be building blocks to put this place back together again. That's what it's going to be. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be me up there on top of that hill. I will still be around. But, you know, that's what I always say. You know, we're going to destroy ourselves being stubborn as we are and, it will go back to the days of the old machines and before we had electronics. Yes, electronics are great. And I was very fortunate to start in this business back before all the electronics got as wonderful as they are now. Because I, I can remember uh, some very long hours in a plant and adjusting the brakes at the end of the shift and burning your arms on a Warner brake on the vibrators. Uh, those days I don't miss. I really don't. Uh, I still got scars on my forearms from getting burnt by those brake housings and stuff. But that's what we had to do. You know, when the shift ended, you took your brake covers off, you got your feeler gauges out, and you readjusted the brakes for the next next run in the morning. And, and if you didn't, you know, the vibrators weren't going to stop. Nowadays, we just push a button and tell it when we want it to stop. They've got encoders in them, and we can stop them on a dime anywhere, anytime. And that's something... To see all the changes I've got to see, it's very impressive. 
And uh, it's we're just now getting into the the modern way of the electronic world. It's there's so many things out there that are going to change. You know, when I'm gone, there will be, you know, I'm sure everything will be run from the office, which there are a lot of plants that are being run like that. They're completely caged in and nobody's on the plant floor and they're controlled from a central control room. And uh, people in the park plants have been around a long time. Don't think that can happen. Well, it can. I've seen it in many places and they run very well. And uh, that's coming. And uh, everything from they'll they control everything from one main control room. And they're just sitting in a control room overlooking everything. And if they need to call a block, they've got ways of doing that. Uh, as far as everything's done from a control room. It's kind of like the servo pack. You do everything from that HMI. And they have whole plants that are integrated that way now. And that's that's pretty impressive to see. And uh, I was actually in a plant up in Pennsylvania. And I did an install in that plant in one side of it. And they had a big board machine running over in the middle of the plant. Well, when I got through with my job, I wanted to kind of go over and see what it looked like, you know, kind of be around a big board, see what it looks like. And I'm sitting there watching it run, and I see this man come out of this control room, and he, he kind of waves his hand at me. And so I wave back at him real big, you know, and, and uh, he waves at me again. So I wave at him again. And, you know, I thought he was just saying hi. Well, I was standing in front of a laser switch that shut the whole plant down about the next three seconds. I felt kind of dumb. I thought, man, I thought you saying hi. And, no, I just, and you know, there's, that's the deal. There's laser fences now. And, and there's, uh, before, you know, we just had to put up a rope and, uh, a, a chain link fence and say, do not go in there, you know? And now there's, if you could step in there now, there's a laser switch and so many seconds, it, it shuts the whole plant down. So safety has greatly changed around these plants. And, and I've seen some people have some very bad things happen to them. And so, the safety part of it is something that's that's very neat. Uh, it's it's made things a lot better. Now I don't know what they're going to do over there with the stopwatch. Now I don't know how to get any safer than that. But <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's kind of like the guy with the amp meter, you know, doing his batching. I it worked. That's all I can say is it worked. The sad part about it is he had a servo driven block machine, but he was batching like that. Oh man! Well, you actually brought up the next thing I want to ask you about, and sure. that is, why are we making block three and four at a time when these big board machines are out there that'll make them sixteen at a time? And the only big board machine that I've seen is the brand new one they put in over at Alex in a couple of years ago, and I didn't even get to see it run. I just saw it it was brand new shiny it's kind of creepy kind of eerie to be in a yeah. block plant when everything's really shiny and clean uh, i didn't get to see a run but but why are we making block three and four at a time why aren't we using these big boards well some people just like to show off and so they get bigger things no that's not no <laughs> that was for bob right there never mind but uh <laughs> no all right a big board machine well, yes, it will make one tier at a time on like an eight inch or a 12 inch or a pad. Yes, and that's the way you make it. We are a what we call a mom and pop company. We do custom, we do stretchers, or I call stretchers our regular age running block and stuff like that. We still we do everything in house from burnish to split face. So we're more diversified in our product line than you can run like on a big board plant because I mean, you're not going to. 
you're not going to be able to run the custom colored products on a, that machine like you can on a four-to-time machine uh, or a six-to-time machine, say, uh, because you're mainly making a tier-to-time with a big board machine. And so you're not going to make a tier of split-based block because you'd have to have a splitter with 47 different knives going different ways. Uh, so they're, they're made for running like your, what we call just your stretcher-type materials. And yes, they are cost effective and they do produce a lot of quality product. But as far as like a fit for us, uh, yeah, it would be nice to have a machine that we can make a tear time on, but then we'd still have to have something to make our color product and our decorative line that, you know, is where we really make our money. These stretcher products just gets them in the door. Once we get them in the door, then we set that hook and sell them the good stuff. And so that's what the smaller machines do is, is make your, your colors and your split face and your burnish type product. Not to say that you couldn't run a burnish type product on a big board machine. It just, uh, hold that quality to a burnish quality. That would be on a making 15 block at a time. It'd be a little tough. Now I'm not saying they can't do it, but, uh, you know they're they're holding their own just making the stretcher product up there so that's a that's a big board you know and and uh of course any of your split product you'd have very much trouble splitting well now that you called out bob wisnant by name on this podcast i'm absolutely gonna make sure he hears this this i'm gonna text this right to bobby as soon as it's published okay yeah that bob (laughs) little bob yeah yeah little bob yeah well I mean, it's not little anymore. It probably was yeah. first time you met him. <laughs> You're right. Well, we call him Bobby. That's that's it's little Bobby, Bobby's son. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I've known them guys very well, especially Bob Senior. I work for him, so uh, we still talk here once in a while, even though we don't work together anymore. And now nah, I, I got to pick at him. I mean, he's probably I, I probably learned as much from him as I did anybody. So I, I honestly I don't have. Anything good stuff, I like to kid about him a lot, but yeah, he's a good man. Yes, good people. And, you know, the last thing uh, I want to touch on, uh, and I'll let these guys, if they got anything else to add, but uh, the last thing I wanted to touch on is the fact that Rebels is one of the few independents that's out there. You called yourself a mom and pop, but you're, you're a business there. What you guys got going is pretty solid. Uh, All right. But you are independent. And mm-hmm. when I look around the landscape yeah. of the block industry, it seems like the, the corporate buyers are going around and they've just about bought everybody up. And so what keeps the rebels independent? Well, stubbornness. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Blake would be a third generation rebels block plan owner. And he's carrying on a family legacy. And like he told me before I went to work for him, he said, you know, I'm young. And uh, he is. He is young. And he said, I got a lot of living to do. And he said, why do I want to sell out now? And what am I going to do the rest of my life? And so I guess to Blake, it's it's more about carrying on the legacy. And, and it's, you know, he's. I don't really know if they come in and offer him any money, if he would even talk to him. He's, it's not about that. It's, uh, Blake is still one that, you know, wants to put a quality product out there and put his name on it. 
and that you don't find very much anymore, but he's still that way. And uh, he takes it very personal, you know, if, if things aren't going right and he's striving to always make things better. And that's one of the neat qualities about Blake. He is, he, I'm not going to call him a perfectionist, but he has got a drive in him that, that is pretty neat. And Paul, you know what I'm talking about. Blake is, he's always looking to be better or do better or, you know, just leave his mark in the world like that. And, you know, for a young man, I think he's done a great job. Yeah, Blake's one of my favorite people in this business. And, you know, I think that drive, you know, may come through that martial arts background that he has. Sure, he's a, very much. Yeah, black belt, black belt in Brazilian well, jiu-jitsu. Actually, he's, actually he's, he's above that. He's actually considered a trainer now. He, uh I guess they don't have any more belts when you've been doing it as long as he has. So they just make him a trainer. And I'm like, you know, so your students get to whoop up on you. And he goes, yeah, right. And I'm like, come on now. Some of them have got to get you. He goes, really? And I so I, I don't know. I, I got to see a video of him and, and his teacher. And, dude, it, I, I don't know. They were flying through the air. like I'm like, dude, that's got to hurt. But evidently he likes it or something. But, yeah, he's very good at it. And uh, that's where Blake gets his focus from. And he's talked to me a lot about that. And uh, Blake has a different drive than most. You know, he don't – Blake don't ever stop. I I don't know how the guy goes as much as he does, but he's he's wide open. And and, uh, he's always doing something. Uh, It's – I mean, he's really a great guy to – work with you know we had a gentleman get sick here and and we were coming in at two in the morning me and blake were switching out or sometimes we were working together and it was like he said you know i thought when i became the owner i wouldn't be doing this and i'm like well yeah but you still are and he goes i know i must like it or something and that's just blake you know he if he don't know he's gonna learn it and to see the owner of the company walk out there and climb in a mixer and start cleaning it is you know it's you know, it's family then. And that's how we look at a lot of stuff. You know, I like, it's not, we try not to make it work every day, but you know, it is, but there, Blake's a very interesting person to work for. Of course, Lindsay runs office. That's his wife. And, uh, we're all, we'll be fighting with each other one minute and hugging each other the next. I mean, it's just how it works. And, and, uh, you know, you're always going to step on each other's toes, but all in all, we, we have a great relationship and, and I have the freedom to pretty much do what I think is right. And they trust me. And that, that's, that's a very big confident booster. And, and, uh, you know, and every once in a while, you know, I'll be telling Blake something, he'll go, yes, sir. And I'm like, what? He goes, well, I felt like he was kind of getting on me there. Like, you know, I'm like, what? what?" (laughs) You know, and I forget you. I am probably 20 something years older than him, but I forget how old I am sometimes, but Joey, do you have any other uh, questions or comments for our esteemed guest? Uh, no, nothing really. I really appreciate you coming on here and hearing all your stories. I think, uh, <laughs> I think the block industry as a whole is lacking people like you that are innovative and are willing to try new things and are very knowledgeable about so many things. I think there's a, there's a that industry needs a lot of people like you and we don't have very many well i don't see how you survive very long if you couldn't dream up something because every day is a challenge <laughs> Good job. josh you got anything else for us 
No, um, I was able to ask a couple questions earlier in the podcast, and um, I mean Hank pretty much covered everything in in you know, pretty amazing detail. Um, and then on top of all that, Joey took the words right out of my mouth. Is it's very rare to see somebody with so much experience in an industry that is uh, not known for being incredibly innovative. It's it's great to see somebody who can mesh experience and that old school mentality with new school technology and and always be looking to innovate and kind of mesh those two worlds together. Uh, that, you know, that's, that's where you find the key to success there. Um, there's a lot of people who are a little bit more closed minded in the way they look at things because quote unquote, that's the way we've always done it. Right. Um, and finding somebody with experience who's willing to get away from that and learn new things every day. I mean, that's, that's how you grow. You are a hundred percent correct on that mentality in this field. That's the way we've always done it. That's the way we'll continue to do it. And it worked 100 years ago, so we'll keep doing it. And that is what's kept this industry kind of plagued there for whatever reason. You know, people think that, you know, we're just, you know, this block plant, you know, like like was said earlier, block plants aren't usually built right in the middle of the city. You know, they're usually they're usually over by the sanitation department. And uh, as far away as you can get from anything, uh, you know, the only reason Rebels Block is where it is, I think we were here first. And that's why they, they, we're still here. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't even know what the inside of a block plant looks like and or where them blocks come from. But if you walk out your door or walk anywhere in any town and just look around and you might have never noticed that building before, but it's concrete CMU. And they've been making them for 100 years, and, and they're everywhere. And if it wasn't for the concrete CMU, uh, there'd be a lot of buildings not standing. There'd be all them tilt wall buildings. You know what? The world are we going to do with all them tilt walls? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Hank, you bring up a good point that I want to ask you about, too. Um, you know, you've admitted here on the podcast that you're aging, as we all are. Um, and the technology is being integrated into the field itself. Is there a younger generation of of you, basically, um, that's coming up behind you, or is there uh, a gap? Is, is that lacking in the industry right now? What's the outlook going forward? I, I want to say I hope so, but what I'm seeing in my travels, I've met a few, and I met some that were very interesting, very quick learners, and will carry on and there are some out there yes there are a lot of them that grasp the new electronics because this is their era they understand the touch screens they understand the way that the electron or the the logic flows so to them it's as simple as playing a playstation and they don't know why they're doing it they're just doing it and i see a lot of that and that's the ones that kind of worry me because they really don't know what they're changing or what it's doing, but they know if they push this, it's going to make it do this, and that's what they want it to do, but they can't tell you exactly why, and, that, and that's that's something that I think we are losing. Uh, you see it also, not in the man, also, it's in the manufacturing field, but even in the masonry field, you, you see the, the younger people that are either working with a mason crew or something, they're not, they're playing on the phone, they're not paying attention to what that lion's telling them and and i see that when i go out on these job sites and i'm like wow what is going to happen in the future and you know i guess we will have a lot more tilt wall because you just stand that stuff up and 
<laughs> no, I mean, my hat's off to those gentlemen. I, I My dad-in-law worked in Tiltwall, bless his heart. And, and uh, I carried him into a block plant when he was about, I think he was 87 years old, and I carried him into a block plant. And a man had been in Tiltwall all his life and, and had built all these buildings here in Houston. And he walked into a block plant, and he just stood in awe, and he's like, wow, I had no idea. And he said, I, I just always thought this is just a eight eight sixteen hollow block. And he said, I had no idea this is what it was all about. And I mean, to see a man like him thoroughly impressed, it probably poured more, more concrete than I'll ever see. But to see him impressed with it, you know, showed me that, you know, what is our younger era going? They don't see it like he did. And to him, it was impressive. And I see him come and go as far as in the plant side and, I have a young one right now that I've got a lot of faith in. I'm working with him. He's young. He's uh, 20 years old. And I, I kept, I don't know. I don't know which way he's going to be. He's smart. He's hes very quick to grasp the electronic stuff. The mechanical, he's a little slow on. But it's, you know, that's not his fault. He, he hasn't worked around mechanical stuff. But we're going to break him in real quick, you know, because you, you get a lot of work on mechanical but the electrical, as far as the, the programming stuff, he's quick. And that's what impressed me about the younger people. Uh, only problem is we just, you know, don't have a great place to use a cell phone in a block plant. So I don't know if the younger ones will stay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I want to say I believe that, but I got my doubts too, because a lot of people don't want to, I mean, come on, face it. We're going to go home dirty and sweaty every day just about if you go out in that plant. And a lot of people are afraid to get dirty and sweaty. And and I hate to say that because that's how I see the world becoming. And I hope it's not that way. Uh, I I keep having faith. I put it that way. That's the way I feel. Well, Hank, we got faith in you and you guys are rebels that you're going to keep doing things and doing them well, making quality blog, quality products. And uh, we really appreciate your time here today, man. I appreciate y'all inviting me. Yeah, it's a great conversation. Loved it. I thank y'all very much. Absolutely, brother. Thanks, man. Have a great rest of your day. All right. You too, buddy. Thank y'all. All All right. See you. All right. That's going to do it for episode four. Uh, One final thank you to Hank. Really had fun with this interview. Uh, A lot of information, a lot of wisdom, and a great insight into the block industry and uh, the CMU industry in general. Um, Hank's been around for a long time. He's seen a lot of things and um, definitely appreciate him sharing his knowledge with us here on the podcast. So until next time, we'll see you around and be on the lookout for episode number five.